God's eggs, on the other hand, <laughs> has almost as many ingredients as, as good chai, or probably more. Um, but I think there is a few ingredients we can talk about when we talk about God's eggs, what, whatever that means, right? But I'm assuming what you mean is the, um, the, the, the total openness to the divine and your body in total bliss with a partner or without, right? And you're probably talking with a partner since you happen to have one on hand. <laughs> so there is there in equal to good chai, um, the ingredients can be, you know, can be put together in different ways. But there is some base ingredients, and of course, one of the base ingredient is your disposition. Right, that's a big one. So your disposition is one big ingredient. The other one is a conductive body. And I would say um, the third one is an element of um, subtle body ability and practice. And then the fourth one is a certain amount of technique. So that's, that's kind of how I would slice it. There's other ones probably, but you're asking me and I'm kind of pulling them from the some, somewhere from the back of my brain. <laughs> so as I speak, there might be more coming. So disposition is one um, that has to do a lot with, let's say, the devotional disposition of your being. And that's... Um, towards God, whatever God means to you, that could be nature, the universe, uh, a specific, you know, more religious situation where you're able to open and orient your being towards that which is your divine North Star. And um, that's equal amounts of just allowing a relaxing and an opening and also a certain kind of a focus so that you don't get distracted. Right? That's the first piece. And then kind of from your, I'm, I'm pointing far out here, right? From your North Star backwards, if you want to practice with a partner, then it's useful when you can see your partner as an emissary of the divine, so to speak, or a portal into the divine. Um, and so I always imagine it kind of like there's you and then there's a potential partner and then there's God in this, you know, series of portals, so to speak, where one opens into the other, opens into the other, opens into the other in these big concentric circles or something like that. And that's a nice thing to work with in disposition simply because when we can have a disposition of, um, let's say, good regard and divine appreciation and orientation to a partner, then that, of course, shifts the relationship quite substantially. That's not to say that there isn't annoyance and day-to-day -day stuff and, you know, boundaries you have to set and conversations you have to have, but a general orientation and then that orientation kind of goes towards the divine. And it, it, it doesn't matter if it's a male partner or a female partner. It's just God and God's emissary in your life. So, and then of course it comes to you as an also kind of an emanation of that divine, 
where you are able to, which is something we did in this retreat, right, where we, we essentially train to have appreciation for yourself the way you want to have other people have appreciation for you, which often kind of goes hand in hand, our own refusal and other people's refusal. So there are the key elements and the keys to having an open um, mind, body and, and spirit towards the divine, which is also you. So those are the three ingredients in the God's sakes um, aspect of devotion or, or devotional attention. And that can be practiced, of course, and that can be practiced both in um, being able to keep your attention there, uh, in softening your heart and opening your heart, which is a big part of what we're going to do in this next retreat, right? The, the kind of the heart opening and softening and um, putting your uh, attention towards, and then also the relaxation um, of that where you stop Hey, I need that and you just allow for that to be the case as it always is so that's the first piece I'll talk about conductive body next and because conductive body is um, that's a fairly clear-cut thing right and and that is the subtle body practice as well in the context of um, as I was talking with Lisa yesterday about the, the, the boundaries, uh, the, the decision-making gym, there's also a boundary gym, which is similar. But um, we have to develop uh, reasonable amounts of capacity so we can actually hold that amount of bliss and that amount of devotion and that amount of energy. And that has two domains. One is you have to be able to feel more subtle arisings in your body, which is one set of practices, subtle body practices, inner channel practices, practices of relaxing, feeling outward, um, allowing your body to become um, more permeable in a certain way, more feeling, more sensitized, more relaxed. And then the other aspect of that is larger capacity. Because one of the big problems with God's sake, so to speak, is that most people have an upper limit as to how much bliss the body can hold and also how much pleasure the body can hold. But I'm focusing on the bliss, which is one of the trademarks of God's sake, so to speak, is that that massive, you know, blast of bliss that opens your entire body. And for that, you have to have a nervous system that can maintain that. Right? And very often, Sarah was talking a little bit about that the other day, um, essentially, let me say this differently, sometimes your body uh, gets open too fast and can kind of fry, that happens a lot of times when people have one experience of bliss, either a, you know, a teacher or a guru or something opened your body really fast and it's a little bit like somebody plugged a fire hose into a garden hose socket and you know the water comes through but it essentially frays the garden hose and, and anywhere there's a little bit of weakness in the garden hose, the water starts spraying out sideways. So 
uh, being able to hold capacity is the other aspect of the development. And they go hand in hand where you essentially do subtle body practice and you sensitize yourself. And at the same time, you also expose yourself to um, garden hose uh, pressure of life, let's say, uh, while not breaking from it, which is easier said than done, of course. But that's a practice all in itself where you build the capacity and you're able to turn towards that strong sensation, both, of course, of bliss, but also of all the negative stuff that comes with it. So that's the, the next piece. So technique then would be actual skill sets and practices that allow you to engage in that uh, exploration alone or with a partner. So in the technique uh, the domain are things like, um, can you have pleasure in your body? Can you produce pleasure in your own body? That would be technique. It's fairly straightforward. You have to learn how to do that. You have to use your body in a way that's pleasurable. Um, technique would also be able, if you're doing this with a partner or by yourself, doesn't matter, um, um, practicing the attentional skill it takes to stick with it. So that's a very big piece of technique, is that you're actually capable of not fuzzing out, not checking your email, not taking your phone, not starting to scratch your head or have to adjust your you know, your T-shirt or whatever it is that people, or you suddenly are very hungry or you have to pee or both at the same time. You know, all the things that people do to um, fuzz out. And that interestingly also means that sometimes when people do pleasure practice, which is one of the aspects of um, God's sex, so to speak, that you can actually conduct pleasure in your own body reliably well, you can't just hope some partner will do you. You need to be able to do yourself well enough that you build some capacity. Um, the way people often do it is they get to a point where their body and their, their, their disposition, everything opens, and then they go, ah, yeah, best just have an orgasm quickly, right? And then that pops them out. No, nothing wrong with having orgasms, but you know how you can have one of those that just make you go, oh, okay, I'm done. Whew, and then you move on with your busy life. So there's a, there's a whole thing around skill or technique that allows you to actually engage in the modality of God's sex that you want to, solo or with a partner. If it's with a partner, that of course also includes um, how do you touch, how do you um, connect, um, what's your attitude, you know, how do you practice, because for most people, this either happens wildly spontaneous and then can't be replicated, or they have to actually give it a bit of a go, you know, um, try things out, figure out how you can sustain it and maintain it. But I think of all the ones that I've just mentioned, your devotional attitude is the single most important one. Even if you don't have any of the other stuff, if your devotional heart can um, line itself up. There's a certain kind of a transmission of goodness and bliss and um, and and you know openness that's always available. And you know that you've been to those places. Nature is one of those places. This can happen. Um, you can have God's sex with nature essentially, and um, 
So there's many ways to go at it and all you really have to decide is what's your chosen form and then uh, you know, evaluate the ingredients and how do they occur in your system and then shore up or practice in the areas where you could use a bit of extra skill, extra sensitivity, extra relaxation, extra disposition, um, heart opening, any of those things. So, And then like in a good chai, there's a certain kind of a X factor, <laughs> right? Where sometimes you have all the right ingredients in all the right uh, dimensions and you make it and it's just not quite it. <laughs> and then other times you just throw the thing in and heap a bit of whatever creamer on it um, and it's amazing and so but that can only happen if the base ingredients are there so you're you're pretty much articulating something that's always true but we don't know it's always true because well I'll start by saying it's always true and we're not aware it's always true till we are. So meaning when you are a human um, exposing yourself sexually to another, and what I mean by that is exposing yourself to the possibility of sexual engagement, right, or erotic engagement then what we're looking at is that as the person who gets penetrated, you're actually opening your body, penetrated physically now, not, not just emotionally or psychically, but you're opening your body to another human. That in itself should be scaring the shit out of you, right? But it doesn't when we're young for the obvious reasons, because first of all, we're inexperienced, Let's say best case scenario, you didn't have any transgressions against you, but now you've come to that point where you're wanting to be sexually active and you're essentially feeling, as a woman particularly, very often very powerful um, because it's a thing that other people want and it's a thing you can wield and it's in a certain way a weapon. Uh, it can also be weaponized against you though, but you don't know that yet or you're finding that out. So there's an entire consideration there around your um, sexual power. And then there's an entire consideration of what happens when you actually combine yourself erotically with another human. And um, the more you know, the less likely it is that you go in there casually, right? Because only when you're not really that aware of what happens when that happens can you just go there. And thankfully for most of us, we had a moment of total ignorance and we got to play around a bit and, you know, and, and kind of just do the thing that one does. But as you become more discerning or as you have experiences that are not that great, um, you come to understand that any time you open yourself to somebody, not only in the, in the actual intercourse, but in the emotional, but you're, you're opening yourself to all kinds of great and not so great situations. So what you're feeling now post-menopause where it's apparent because now you're no longer going 
well, I have this amazing body that does whatever I want with whomever I want to, and I'm going to do the thing I want to do because that's what I'm essentially programmed by nature to do. But you're going, well, you know, I have a body. I like it, but it's not the body of my 25-year-old self. I'm still coming to terms with the changes in my body. And also, I don't want to engage with somebody who isn't aware or with it in a way that I'm getting hurt physically, emotionally, psychically, however, right, relationally. So with every layer of discernment, your choices of partners get less. That sucks, but that's always been the case. It's just you weren't that discerning or that willing to discern, right? If you would have been that willing to discern with 18, your sexual experiences as a teenager would have been very different, right? So it, it, I think it's good to know that that's a choice you're making and that's not something that you're victim to, right? You're making a choice to be more discerning about whom you open yourself up to. And of course, when your body goes through changes and when you no longer look the way you used to look, um, Good or bad, there's no judgment there, right? But it's, it, it can be quite freaky when you've looked one way for a long time. I remember, I mean, I saw basically no changes in my body till my f early 40s. And it was always the same. Uh, and then suddenly you see things you've never seen. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's, that's scary in itself. And so to then expose somebody else to that feels even more scary. The good news is that men for the most part report that they're not hung up on the things that you are hung up on. Yeah, that's not to say that men are not intensely visual and all of that, but when it comes to the actual having sex with a woman, uh, the things you think they look at are not the things they look at for the most part. Yes, and once again, that's always been the case. You've just now arrived there where that's a non-negotiable, right? And that's the good news is because you are now free of, uh, let's say, the, the, the ignorance of your youth, right? You're free of certain demands on your, let's say, reproduction and stuff like that. And you can actually enforce that like you never have, but it, it does require, like you, say, uh, like you say, a skill of being intimate and allowing yourself to be with somebody that's very similar to what I just talked about, where you essentially have a disposition of allowing and of um, connecting and of orienting that we does that, that's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, definitely not for the faint of heart, but it's a skill. Intimacy is a skill you can learn, and um, it's also a worthwhile cause to investigate with whom you can have that. So I would say, you know, go forth and explore. <laughs> but I would also say that you want to, um, you know, you were saying, well, I'm content alone. Is it a problem that I want to have sex? No, it's not. 
right? There's a big difference between wanting to have deep intimacy and connection or being so addicted to it that you have to have it regardless the price. That's how you know if you are s caught in something where you do stuff that in the aftermath you go, uh, you know, just for that fix. Or if you can deeply yearn for the interaction, the connection, which is natural and a big part of what makes human beings, uh, you know, human. And also from a health and mental health perspective, very important. It's not to say that you always have to have a partner, but it's good to have intimate connections. And it's of course also good to have regular sexual activity because it's, you know, at it's like you said, you're afraid of the pain. It's use it or lose it. Yeah, exactly. But the only way that you will know that it's not right is by going there. Right? And that's the, that's the unfortunate thing. There's a certain amount of um, throwing yourself on the, on the fire and seeing if you, if you sizzle or burn. <laughs> but that's where good distinctions come in, right? You go there and, and you, it's not a process of, all the way or nothing. It's the gradual entering into that domain. No. And there's nothing wrong at all with going there really slowly. And if you meet somebody who can't do that, then well, that's definitely not the person for you. Good luck. <laughs> I would suggest you look places that you wouldn't normally look because if you think you're gonna find a conscious man in the conscious man community, you are in for a rough awakening. Yeah, well, that's the whole idea. You don't want a conscious man. You, want an, you, you actually want a normal human being doing normal things, um, having a disposition towards God by appreciating life and not some dude who sits on his ass and spouts stuff, right? That's what I mean. So that's why I said, better prowl a cattle station. There's <laughs> a good chance that you, that you find someone who has a natural appreciation of life and a natural appreciation of women of all ages who is in a natural environment, you know, doing normal things with normal people. <laughs> Yes, and when I mean normal, you know, well, whatever that is, but, you know, not that, yeah. Where I live in, in California, I live outside, far outside of Los Angeles, like at, at almost two hours outside of Los Angeles, but also outside of that village. And where I live, the neighbors are a very mixed bag of people whose grandparents, great-grandparents had homesteaded there and who are very salt of the earth gun-toting, all kinds of voting, you know, in weird directions, people, and then artists and writers and expats and things like that. But um, the, the ethics of that place is one of actual true community. And um, these people have never heard of intentional community or whatever the hell, you know, people say, but they are a community and, and there's something really well worth looking at when you feel people who are actually naturally doing the things that other people are trying to get back to. So that's why I'm saying prowl outside of a cattle station. <laughs> as long as your body moves, 
and as long as you allow your body to move your body will unravel what needs to be unraveled or find whatever it finds regardless of the music so sometimes uh, music can be kind of evocative of of certain strains but those strains are already there and um, you know, I often practice without music simply because I'm somewhere where I don't have a speaker or I don't feel like even dealing with it. Um, and stuff still happens. And then sometimes I have very specific music for myself that evokes certain things, but then something totally different shows up. So it's kind of a loose relationship where you can use music to kind of induce certain waves of exploration but eventually the body will just settle on what needs to be settled and that's one of the things we cover in fine detail in the teacher training how do you sequence a class there's many modalities i think the last i i just wrote them all down the other day there's 21 ways i've i've kind of worked with it we teach the main four ones in the teacher training and uh, there's ways of sequencing them and there's certain things to do uh, to help the nervous system. It's very, very specific underlying elements that are not visible to somebody doing it, but that if you know really allows people to have a very profound experience. I, I used to do that kind of stuff in my 20s, meaning really, really, um, you know, experiment with could I go to another room um, could I see things in the other room and then come back and talk about it and I actually had a group of friends when uh, during university while everybody else was out partying we would um, sit in my one friend's living room who had a big living room and do past life regressions and hypnosis and you know like travel to the upstairs at, uh, um, uh, apartment to and then come back and write it down and then under some uh, excuse ring on the bell of the upstairs neighbor saying we think there was some kind of a leak or something <laughs> like all kinds of weird shit so so yes I have and um, you know I think there's there's some real interesting um, explorations to be done but I don't work with it so none of my work or what I do um, has any of that. There's not a direct correlation in the sense that nonlinear does not bring on astral travel. Um, but, but in general, once your body gets sensitized, which it will after five days of this kind of work, your tendencies, both good and bad, um, kind of come to the forefront. And very, very often when people do a lot of nonlinear and in the teacher trainings and stuff like that, um, it also washes out stuff, so traumatic stuff, but as well, you know, memories and things like that. And it sensitizes the body toward certain experiences. So if this is something that happens to you and then you come to and you're really freaked out, there are some really good books on the subject where you learn how to not accidentally pop out which might be a good thing to do. But in general, till you get your hands on, that, on those books, the thing to do at the, um, at, the, at, at the end of a workshop like this or at the end of strong nonlinear practice is in an ideal world, a full water submersion. Mm -hmm. So uh, a bath, a shower if you, where you can run it over the top of your head, 
um, swimming in the ocean, ice baths, but as much water on your body as you can so that your system settles. And then if you tend to kind of fly off into the ethers, then a really good heavy meal is also something to consider, you know, in an ideal world. Meat, of course. Right? Meat and red wine is, is your... <laughs> She's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, meat, um, if you are a vegetarian, uh, root vegetables, you know, beets, carrots, um, potatoes. Potatoes are very good, of course, because it's such a, you know. But so that kind of root, root vegetable foods and meats and red wine are um, tried and true substances to keep you from flying off. Salt also. Yeah, they're on the website. Uh, under about, you'll see, we'll, we'll, yeah, I can, we'll send an email out, but under about, you'll see the nonlinear movement method. And when you open that page, there's all the different links to the next teacher training, which, by the way, starts March 25th. Um, and um, classes and resources and home practice and uh, playlist and everything. So, yeah. So when you have habitual breath patterns, which are, as you describe, kind of um, early, installed early, right? Was it a traumatic experience that installed it or was it just bad habits? Yeah, so that would be a traumatic injury. And what I mean with traumatic injury, somewhere in your body something happened that required your body to adapt and create different patterns, right? Which is what all trauma ends up being, right? Meaning the body has to cope with something. And by coping with something, new behavior patterns are being built that are physical, emotional, and with that then mental. So if you have a continuous experience of not getting enough air, which is a very fundamental thing, right? Or um, breathing hurting or breathing being difficult or breathing um, making you feel like you don't get enough air or stuff like that, then obviously somewhere in your body, your body goes, well, that's not pleasant. Let's not do that, right? And uh, there's a certain kind of a wisdom in there in the sense that probably not gasping for air when you were asthmatic probably made your system relax a bit faster. That's right, right? So, so that's the first thing to understand is that that shallow breath is your body's wisdom to counteract something that your body just happens to do on occasion. So if you can let's say, acknowledge your body's wisdom and go, oh, this is a pattern that my body knows how to engage when it feels like I shouldn't be engaging with breath that deeply. You could perhaps even just let it be, right? Because you could say, well, maybe my body knows something I don't know in this moment, and my breath is de-escalating a potential aggravation, and I'm just going to relax into that clench as my body's ability to regulate something. And then when you do that, 
and you don't go, oh, I need to breathe deeper, or why am I clenching, or I'm not getting air, but you just go, okay. Yeah. Then, then you probably can detect that there might be something, actually, where your body goes, this is how we deal with this. Or you can uh, go, oh, this is an old thing. I no longer have the actual asthma or inflammation, but this felt like it, and so my body did what it needed to do back then. So when that happens next, I'm going to just pay attention to can I relax that pattern a bit? But the last thing you want to do is try to breathe deeply against that pattern. Because your body will go, fuck that, you know. Okay, well, so, that's, so then that's a different thing, right? So if it's a chronic thing and not just situational, that's a different story. So situational, you go, okay, uh, there might be a moment, I'm just going to be with that. If it's chronic, then there's a few things you can do. So the first thing to do is track what it connects to. So chronic could be, it's just a habit. Mm -hmm. Could also be because there's some irritant in your system. Or it could be because it connects to an emotional aspect that um, makes you feel like that's a better way to go. Right, so those are your th three options, and it's good to track that. So once you've done that, then um, the way to go at it is to actually um, track the pattern. So um, how you would track the pattern is by essentially laying down and noticing where contraction sits. And then you have a few options here. You can, so let's say, I don't know, making this up, you can feel your solar plexus is really tight, right? So then what you can do is you can lay there and you can go, okay, so all day today I've been feeling this. Where, where does it sit? And then you find like two or three or four spots where you can actually locate it. And then what you can do is you can start like kind of a laying down nonlinear. You hold that spot. And you kind of contract and release and move and, you know, kind of just like feel it. And then typically what happens when you do that, you find the next spot and then you hold that spot too. Uh, and then you kind of just like play with that and kind of let that, you know, move. And then ever so often, um, this is something I learned from a method called Grinberg, which I don't know if they have practitioners in Australia, you should check it out. Um, ever so often, you then kind of go on your body like this. And if you feel, which I'm doing right now if I do it, a little bit of a shiver, then that's the release of that particular layer. So you move, you, you can do it in nonlinear, and then ever so often, you kind of, you can either go around or you can go around the spot. But best usually is like to go over the torso and the belly in, in that way, sometimes the thighs. And when you feel that shiver, let that shiver happen and then start again. So that's one way to play around with it. If you can find a good body worker. Yeah, so if you can find somebody who can actually release the points in between the, in the muscles between your ribs, that's sometimes super useful when it comes to traumatic breath patterns 
is to kind of go into the intercostals and, and stretch that and release that. So there is ways to work with it when it's chronic, um, but it's, it's always very important that you go, mm, you know, don't, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You let the body have the, you know, the experience of keeping you safe while you're also, you know, moving some of the stuff out. The quick answer to that is you won't know you're out of your body till you're back in your body. So the best way to do it is to essentially intersperse your entire day with embodiment practices, as simple as hip circles or a bit of nonlinear or planting your feet on the ground or walking in mud and noticing what that feels like and kind of putting a pin in that and going embodied, embodied, embodied. And then when you kind of go up and out, you'll feel the dissipating of that sensation and then you know you're out and then you can bring yourself back in.